March 2019. While in Morocco, Pope Francis said, Bridges are needed, and we feel pain when we see people who prefer to build walls. Why do we feel sad? Because those who build walls will end up being prisoners of the walls they build. Instead, those who build bridges will go forward. Building bridges for me is something that goes almost beyond human. Todd Miller, in his book, Build Bridges, Not Walls. Welcome to Delmarva Today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. Todd Miller is back with us this morning to talk about his recent book, Build Bridges, Not Walls, and how we might manage our borders in a more human way. Todd, welcome to Delmarva today. Tell us about your book. Well, the, the book itself, I, I'd like to tell a little story of how it actually was born. And, and um, I'd be remiss not to mention, so, so what happened was that I was driving on a road in Southern Arizona and a man came off the side of the road, a man who had been walking in the desert for several days, turned out he was from Guatemala. And uh, I stopped to, to see if he needed any. This was not the first time this, was ha- this had happened. This happened actually after I spent the night up in what is the Baba Kibari mountain range in, Ari- in Arizona. That's a, a place that's very sacred to the Tana Awesome people who live in Southern Arizona. And um, I had... Uh, I had actually hiked up into those mountains and right before I came down, I had this really interesting experience of just looking out as I was hiking through the saguaros and the aquatillos and the different vegetation that we have in the desert here. And you could see so far away, you could see into Mexico. I did had no idea where Mexico border was, right? So I was actually, wow, I was just seeing a world without borders really um, for that moment. And um, so I came down and I came down into the desert and I'm, rumbling down the dirt road and and this man comes out and i'll and and i stop the car and i give him water and he drinks the water and he, i give him some food and and he, he he eats some food and then he asked if he could have a ride to the next town now this is how this new book was really born it was uh it was um it was like, whoa, you know, because I at first when he asked, I had to, I all of a sudden the border came back, whatever that borderless feeling was, it was gone. I mean, I thought about the, the, all the roving patrols and the, and the high tech surveillance cameras that could see from surveillance towers and the drones and all the times the different technology that you don't know if you're ever being watched or not, but you know, it's all out there. And so that was a, because I thought of all that because it would be a felony. If I were to trans, like giving him water was not a felony. Giving him food was not a felony. But if I were to transport him and I was, didn't ask him if he had papers, but I was assuming, right, that he was undocumented and walking through the desert because that's, you know, assuming. But I would be, you know, I could be get a prison term. So that made me, that made me um, really mad, you know, and, and really that, that, 
that I, you know, I saw the border as essentially like all the values that I've been taught as from a very young age of, of helping a fellow human being out every religious value, spiritual value of hospitality, every, you know, all of that had this like anti-kindness to your fellow human beings. And so that, that led to a sort of meditation, a meditation of, of 15, 20 years of reporting on this and this kind of a consultation process around, around the border. And one of, you know, I, I, in, the, in, in Bill Bridges, my walls, I look at, I talk, I talk with a number of different people from, from religious leaders to philosophers, to visionaries, to border patrol agents, to industry representatives. And what, but one of the main people I, I, or the, one of the most, the, the, one of the wisest people that I, I talked to was my own child, the children and my own child and um, my, my uh, five-year-old uh, William. And he um, has been asking me um, ever since he became conscious of the border wall. And really ever since, and I won't go into the story, but he got yelled at by a border patrol agent hmm. um, for approaching a wall and trying to talk to people on the other side who were waving to them. And he, he when after that happened, he kind of sat in the sand because we were on the coast of California, right where the border wall goes into the ocean. And he sat there kind of meditatively and he looked at me and he said, and we talked about what just happened with the agent and how he yelled at him and how, he, how I guess he couldn't go to the wall to talk to people. And then he said, why don't we, um, why can't we build, why can't we, um, uh, I forget, now I'm forgetting exactly what he said, but why can't we build bikes in the border wall? And then why can't we turn the border wall? In other words, what he was saying, you know, in this most distilled way of almost all the consultations that I had with all these people about the border, that, wow, we could do something else. Another world is possible. We even have the material to do it here on the border. And, uh, and we, could, we could turn that instead of this wall that really it causes people like Juan Carlos, the name of the man that I met, that I met in the desert was Juan Carlos. It's designed that he go in the desert. It's designed so he's thirsty. It's designed. There's eight thousand remains of people who have who have um, been found since 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 the 1990s, since prevent what is known as a prevention the deterrence strategy started. And so, isn't there something better we can do? We can do. And then you look at the you look at the wall, the material. Then you look at the budgets of the border, right? You look at the um, this year, $25 billion, if you take CVP and ICE. Um, I just did the calculation, and I'm not going to remember the exact number, but ever since Department of Homeland Security was implemented in 2003, there has been over $300 billion in, given to CVP and ICE since 2003 for, um, for this border and immigration enforcement. And then I then the thought is, and this is what I look at in the book, we have so many things going on on in this world. We have so many like security issues, issues that are that people feel in just in our country, right? Just if you just want to think of the United States, like people drinking leaded water in Flint, Michigan, right. or people or um, a lack of affordable housing and people not losing the roof over their heads right. or, or healthcare um, or even student loans, you know, like people going into debt after getting out of college. And wouldn't that money be more valuable, more to, to human security and human well-being 
um, if it's funneled into those things. And, or if you want to think of threats, the biggest existential threat that we have is climate. You know, this is what the, the climate change is, is um, this, the, one of the biggest threats. So one of the things, the last, last little point I want to make, one of the things I looked at, there's this um, article called The Global Restoration of Trees, and it has, and it has a, a formula in it. You plant this many trees and you have a, this much carbon reduction. And so I did that with a number of Border Patrol agents. And then I took it for 65 years. That's 21,000 Border Patrol agents. That's what we pretty much have right now. Planted one tree every day for 65 years. There'd be a 25% reduction in carbon emissions. And given how the kind of carbon in the atmosphere is causing havoc all around the world and displacing people, that might be a better solution than any sort of wall or barrier and, or anything like that. So some kind of um, environmental um, approach. Uh, but what would you do with the border? Um, what would you do? What would you do with this crossing? Now, I know uh, in your book, you do, you do talk about uh, changing attitudes and, and the possibility of changing the way we look at our neighbors and, and the, way, uh, the way we look at these barriers that we have put up. And on the one hand, uh, from my layman's point of view, borders in one sense do serve a purpose. We've, uh, we all have all kinds of borders that help us identify who we are and uh, maintain who we are, uh, quite frankly. But we cross those borders all the time. And um, tell us what, uh, what attitudes need to change and uh, what, uh, what you would do to help change these attitudes and uh, to change these borders even physically. Yeah, good. Yeah, so um, the 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 looking at the border and and I want to make I want to differentiate. You know that there's like a lot of borders, for example, are you just don't even know you're crossing them. Like again, my five year old loves garbage trucks, and every day there's you know garbage trucks are in certain areas of town, and then you cross a certain street, they're no longer there. That's a border, right? And that serves the right. city because the, the garbage trucks know where to go on that day and they efficiently are able to go to all parts of the city and get the garbage picked up by the end of the end of the um, you know, the end of the day, you know, or the end of the week. And so that's not what I mean, right? Those sorts of borders that are helpful or personal boundaries, right? I have my personal boundaries and I'm going to protect my personal boundaries. That also is definitely not what I mean. What what I what I mean is is looking at these political international boundaries, and I mean even more specifically for our purposes right now, and the militarization of them, and and uh, and the idea of militarizing the borders. Um, for example, in as I, as I discussed in the previous episode, but I'll, I'll mention a couple things here. Um, these, these, these borders have been built up astronomically, dramatically, historically in the last 25 years. Right. The, the idea of militarized borders actually 
and there are a few exceptions to this, but the way that we're seeing it now on the U.S. southern border and now all over the world, really, is relatively new. It's a new, it's a new concept of, of, um, of, these, of this, this kind of massive, uh, the, what, what we've seen, like, what, like what, in 1994, the border and immigration budget was $1.5 billion. Now it's $25 billion at the annual budget. You can see that trajectory of how much it's grown. And, uh, and, and those, and, 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 and that's what, uh, really, you know, that, that's what forces like people like Juan Carlos into the desert among many others. And, um, so it gets me to thinking, you know, like if you, or for one thing, and Bill Bird is not walls, I'm not to start a conversation. It's almost like, I don't necessarily know, but I do, what I do know is that these things have to be unpacked. I do know that a lot of people don't actually know what's been going on in the border. They don't know how much has been built up. And then the other thing is that it's hard to think of a world without this border. It's, it's kind of ingrained in our head. So how, how do you look at it from that angle and um, have a conversation, just unpack it, think about it, think about well-being, think about human security, bring all those issues into play. And then how would it physically look? I want to share just one briefly one story, and this actually comes from the very ending of my um, my pre previous book, Storming the Wall. And it, it to me that the um, I went to look at this binational ecological restoration project, and um, when I was there, it's it was right on the bo actual border. And one actually one little quick thing, like well, the first thing that the guide showed me was actually how the border, part of the border wall had been dragged into Mexico a quarter mile. So these hurricanes, we get remnants of hurricanes in Arizona and they just flooded down these dry watches, smashed into the wall and dragged this, this part of the wall. And I looked at it with complete amazement because it was being devoured. <laughs> it was being devoured. It was like soil was coming on. There's flowers growing out of it. And there's, there was a, there's uh, spider webs on it. It was like the planet was taking it over again. Like without any maintenance, these things, this thing would not, it, it just, it just wouldn't exist. And, but at the same time, it, it had been replaced and you could see the, uh, another Normandy barrier. That's what they call the vehicle barriers. I saw a green stripe border patrol vehicle. Then I saw like a, a surveillance tower with these capabilities of seeing seven miles away with the cameras. But in front of me was um, what they were doing for the bi this binational water conservation project. And what they were doing was stacking what are called gabions, which are, which are um, rocks in, in steel cages. They, they stacked on top of each other actually looked like this stone carved wall, right? And, and I looked at both of them, right? And this was the, our binational project, the people coming from both sides of the border. And I looked at the border apparatus which was basically to keep people out. And I was like, that is a tale of two possibilities, right? It's, a, it's, it's a two things that we could possibly do. And, but the thing, the difference was, was the gabions were like, were meant to be sponges. So when the, when the monsoon waters came, slow down the water, the soil sucks in the water and the drought, and mind you, there's a 15 year drought as predicted in Arizona going on there might be slightly reversed. And before my, the guides started to show me, oh, the, all this is growing back. Um, the animals are coming back. The desert willows are coming back. The native grasses are coming back. But most importantly, the water table had risen 
30 feet in a place that's in a complete drought. And I think, and I look at that and I think, wow, we, we could uh, be, we're spending all this money on this, this one thing where you have this possibility of bringing water back in a drought um, that, that could have incredible impacts. And that's what they pretty much told me. And the whole ecosystem, including human communities, including places that, that where water scarcity is making people displaced could have this huge impact. And so, and so like that is, you know, you have those two, you have, obviously, you know, I, you have to, we are so much in the other one with the border being built up that maybe there are small steps. Maybe the budgets don't have to go up every year. Maybe they can plateau and that money goes to something like that, or they can go down a million dollars and you put that into it and just kind of a slowly, it could be a slowly decreasing kind of demilitarization of the border that's then funneled into other things that would be much better for the well-being of everyone. I thought it was really very interesting. You talked about that um, in your book as water farming. And I thought to myself, what in the world is water farming? And then I read what was happy, happening with these uh, gabions. And um, it, it's just that the water gets stored. So the water slows down. And when it slows down, the soil can absorb it. And what, what was happening before is the water would just race through the dry washes and the erosion was incredible. And now less erosion yeah. and more just water tables going up. So there's uh, uh, the border uh, in that sense becomes an asset uh, to, uh, to the community as it uh, makes farming possible again and provides a level of water that is helpful, uh, that's helpful to them. L let me ask you if um, in terms of borders, can we learn anything from uh, the European Union and um, the way the Union is, is dealing with the borders in Europe? Does that, does that help in any way? And then uh, our border with Canada, does that provide any, any help for us in looking at other borders uh, around the world? Well, the border in the European Union, that's a very interesting, the Schengen area, which is basically the area where, you know, the, the sort of border controls between countries, uh, at least I, I'm, I'm worried to say they're completely gone because I, I, you know, during the pandemic, I think there have been in some places where they've been put back up, yeah. but, um, but basically the idea of the free, the freedom of movement within the Schengen area. I wanna stress within that area because then it becomes, I guess another example, and I think maybe a good one is how the, the states of the United States, right? You, like when my dad lost his job, somebody in Guatemala loses their job. My dad lost his job in Buffalo as industry moved out of Buffalo he could cross a border and go to Ohio and get another job. And that's what he did. There was nobody stopping him. There was no, there was no like border, the, the Ohio, Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania, New York borders are not, no, he could travel freely and get that new job. Guatemala, another, as we were, have been discussing, but the whole other 
that's a whole other thing. So you so you look you could look at that the, the states the Schengen area. Um, one thing to note about the European Union is around the Schengen area, the kind of border militarization has has been very similar to what you see like on the U.S. southern border particularly, um, and that's been quite fortified, and that's one of the reasons why you hear a lot about ships capsizing in the in the Mediterranean. It's right. it's very difficult for people to get into the European Union. That the borders are different. The Mediterranean is a is a big part of that border. Um, there's a lot of the same Aegean Sea going into Greece and Turkey, but those sorts of border prevention through deterrence again, uh, building up so people are then have to take dangerous routes and that's what's happening is the kind of mentality there. Um, the US northern border with, with Canada, it's actually been quite built up. It's, I hate to say it, um, where you have the example of the states, which is within the country, but on the, in the northern, uh, the northern border, the 5,000 mile border with Canada, if you look at the statistics post 9-11, there's been considerable resources and more border patrol agents. I think it's went from about 400 to four to 3,500. But one, one huge thing, and I, I wanna go back to the travel between states thing, is there's no border wall on with Canada, right? There's not, what, what has happened there is more of an internal, internal kind of policing. So um, what the research I've done, like in New York State and northern and in, in, uh, near Rochester, where apple farmers come, or often undocumented labor will come and do like do farm labor and pick like apples in the apple harvest. Well, then Border Patrol, who had never been there before, now from Rochester, come in. And um, one thing that they did with New York State troopers was uh, go out in front of the laundromat on Sundays. The one day off people have, the one day off that people will go wash their clothes. And that becomes a kind of a dragnet, not for that actual border with Canada, but more of an internal policing uh, apparatus. And then it also, this is one of the things that really got me actually to write my first book about the border called Border Patrol Nation, came out in 2014, was when I was traveling back and I grew up in Buffalo, New York. I was traveling back to Buffalo and I was traveling on the Greyhound bus and I went into the Greyhound station and I was to my complete surprise. And this is after living in Arizona where I was used to seeing border patrol. There's border patrol agents in the Greyhound station looking and I saw them, you know, ask people for their papers and actually arrest somebody. And I'm like, whoa, like, so this idea of traveling from state to state then becomes a little bit more difficult when you think of it that way. So. In a way, I, I would say the best example is the actual, you know, of the, the kind of freedom of movement that we have between our states or the freedom of movement within the European Union. But you can't, you have to look at both things, right? You have to look at that out, outer kind of um, fortification of the borders in both cases. Well, you do talk about in, 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 in your book, uh, Bill Bridges, Not Walls, you, you, do talk about changing attitudes, and you talk about approaches for uh, for changing uh, attitudes. Um, uh, the need for empathy is is one um, attitude change that uh, that you you mention. 
Uh, and you and you kind of indicate there, uh, Todd. Unless I miss I'm misreading. You kind of indicate there that that uh, really is something we need to work on. That that has to change first. Are the kind of attitudes we have toward borders? Am I at all accurate there? And and what attitudes do need to change? And how do we do that? And um, we just have a couple of minutes left, but I wish you would respond to that if you don't mind. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I mean, one of the things that was so striking when when I met Juan Carlos was that the border itself was designed to be anti-empathy. Like, so I had to contemplate Juan Carlos, the fact that he'd been walking in the desert, that I was speaking Spanish with him, that that um, those things and that to not transport. So the idea of like me being able to connect with him and have empathy with him is by the, the very encoding of what border security is, is, is um, anti that. And so one of, the, one, of the, one of the big things that I look at, I, lo- I look at empathy, I look at empathy through, through that, that very um, story, but I also look at it in a number of different ways, including the science of empathy, including all the science and empathy that, you know that we have it's an innate sense that all humans have that it it, it it um strengthens with use and it atrophies with disuse and that not only that according to the science like your well-being depends on empathy so this idea of of, of um of, of being able to like see through another person's eyes see and i have a remark and i have no time to, re- to recount it but i have this excellent example from an action from a border patrol agent who's carrying a man a young man who died in his arms where for a small second while he was carrying this man up a hill with um he thought he looked at that man and he he thought he he thought that that man was his own brother um it, it actually he lost his sense that he was actually a border patrol agent and then it, his radio went off and uh, this is all an interview by, that he told me himself. His radio went off, and then all of a sudden he was a border patrol agent again. But that 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 moment of empathy, that moment of connection, the moment of looking and seeing things through 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 this 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 young man's eyes. And then later, his supervisor told him, "Oh, don't worry," because he knew the supervisor knew he was upset. He said, "Don't worry, they were drug mules." And he said, "What do I care? How would I know?" what it's like to live or grow up where they grew up. So he was showing those empathy. Like, how do I know that I wouldn't be the one crossing the border you know, in that sort of situation if I were in those sorts of situations? And, that's, and that was an incredible interview for me to see a border patrol agent who's no longer a border patrol agent really all of a sudden have this, have this kind of revelation or epiphany that really shows like how important empathy is and how it really affects your worldviews and how you view the world, how you see things. So once you have that attitude change, you then begin to work on the mechanics of uh, dealing with the physical aspect of the border and the and the motion, the moving of back and forth. Uh, it, you know, it seems to me, and I'm just kind of thinking out loud here a little bit. It, it just seems to me that. We are, in fact, a, uh, a, a global world now. 
um, with the internet, with uh, commerce, with, with everything, just rockets around the, around the globe. And um, the only barriers it, it would seem of communication uh, are, are actually only language uh, in a lot of cases and, and sometimes custom. But other than that, we, we are human beings and um, we have the same needs, the same desires, the same wishes. And so it, it would seem that, that we could have a way of connecting positively across these borders. I, I, I get the sense that this is sort of where you're going in, in your book on building bridges. It, it is. That connecting with people, connecting with people across borders, seeing things through people's eyes, but also being able to collaborate with them. Like, for example, the water harvesting project that's binational across borders. People from both sides of the borders are working on that. The bill, the bill, the bill, they are building a bridge over a border um, to, to then engage with climate change and drought, you know, and those, those sorts of projects, those sorts of, in a, in a, that's a small scale project, but in a large scale, that could have some huge impacts on, on the planet and, and, that, and the human beings, but also the planet in general. And I think that it, it's, it's definitely the way we need to go. Todd. Thank you again very much for joining me uh, today. And thanks to all of you for listening. This is Delmarva Today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. <laughs>